Hey folks, Ned here. Over the past 25 years, I've talked with thousands of parents of high school students, parents who care deeply about their kids' education and how they deal with stress and the pressure to succeed. But these parents need to work with a team they trust won't just pile on more pressure to achieve better grades and scores. This is why I started Prep Matters in 1997, to create a different kind of experience for test preparation, tutoring, and college admissions planning. This podcast and my books reflect our company's philosophy and approach to helping students. If you have a high school student and would like to talk about putting in place a plan, please get in touch with us. Visit our website at prepmatters.com or call 301-951-0350. That's 301-951-0350. Thanks, and now back to our show. An intrinsic motivation involves doing something that you enjoy doing or something that's important to you, where it's self-fueled and you aren't concerned about time. It's not so hard that it's really stressful. It's not too easy, so it's boring. What I love about intrinsic motivation is that you, you have more neurochemistry of, of real drive. And also, really interesting, one thing they look at is the error detection systems in the brain. So as you're doing something, you're monitoring, is this going right? Are they making a mistake? And when you're intrinsically motivated, you're more alert to making mistakes because you want to do it well, as, as opposed to extrinsic, if you're being rewarded or you're doing something for fear of, so you don't get punished, you don't want to make mistakes. You don't want to pay any attention to it. It really contributes to excellence, to higher performance, to greater engagement, to more positive mental health. And I think that the challenge for, for me is that many schools, the main motivators for kids are extrinsic. They're stars or high grades or detention, that stuff that this doesn't build that internal intrinsic motivation. Welcome to the Self-Driven Child Podcast. I'm your host, Ned Johnson, and co-author with Dr. William Stickshrude of the books, The Self-Driven Child, The Science and Sense of Giving Your Kids More Control Over Their Lives. And what do you say? How to talk with kids to build motivation, stress tolerance, and a happy home. When we turn to the new year, Often our thoughts turn to changes that we can make for ourselves and our world, sometimes for others. And that can be a source of great motivation that can also sometimes cause frustration for ourselves and perhaps for others. I'm delighted today to be joined by my partner and scribe and dear friend, Bill Stickshrude. And we'd like to talk with you a little bit about motivation and the science of motivation and change, especially. But before we jump into that, Bill, I just want to share, I, I spent some time over the holidays thinking about my goals, things that I'd like to see in 2024. And if I, if it's a cool, I'd love to share with you some of the things I thought of, of goals and resolutions for you in 2024. Are you, you down with that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah I'll, yeah. I'll file those away someplace, okay. Ned. I'd be eager to know. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, so Bill, one of the things when, when we were writing, what do you say, the follow-up to the self-chiffin child, we included a few things in a lot of it's expanding on the language and kind of scenarios and trying to go in deeper on how to apply the principles of the self-chiffin child. But we also folded in a few things that just simply hadn't occurred to us when we were writing the self-chiffin child and the science of change is one of them. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, you know, so often Parents ask, you and me, basically, they so often ask, how do I get my kid to be more motivated? You know, and it's whether for, for, it's for school, if we work harder in sports, or he's not practicing his music, how do I get him to be more motivated? And as we were working on what do you say, it just struck us that they're really saying is, how do I change my kid? How do I, how do I make him different from the way he is right now? 
And so we have this whole science of change, you know, that, that people have studied. How do we help people change? We looked at a variety of things, including uh, motivational interviewing and self-affirmation theory, and, and to try to understand, you know, what, what's really the, the best way for parents to encourage their kids or help, help their kids find their own reasons for changing. So I think that, that that's where I've been parked here the last uh, couple of years is this idea of we really can't change somebody else who's not asking us to help them change because it will get conflict and resistance. But we can facilitate change by helping people, kids understand, helping them see why it's in their own best interest. And it's not that we, uh, not that the hundredth time I told them, now we got it. <laughs> it's really, it's using empathy and understanding, helping kids come to their own conclusions and see the, the, the reason that it might be worthwhile to change. And one thing that occurs to me, it is easy to fall back into thinking that motivation is motivation. And as long as the kid, or in this case, my writing partner, is getting done or working hard on the thing that we think matters, then that's all that matters. And of course, there's a very significant qualitative difference between inner drive and outer drive, intrinsic motivation and extrinsic motivation. And when I hear, as you point out, parents asking, well, how do I motivate my kid? How do I get my kid? Almost always our thinking angles towards or defaults to what are the things that we can do in ways that often are, are likely to fall into extrinsic motivators of how can I nudge them or how can I pressure them or how can I talk them into it? And what so much of the, I think, really powerful science of intrinsic motivation is how do we help kids find their own reasons to do the things that are, as you point out, in their own best interest? Yeah. Yeah, and that's so important in part because when, when kids are doing something, an intrinsic motivation involves doing something that you enjoy doing or something that's important to you, where it's, it's, it's self-fueled and you aren't concerned about time. It's not so hard that it's really stressful. It's not too easy, so it's boring. What I love about intrinsic motivation is that you, you have more neurochemistry of, of real drive. Mm. And also, really interesting, one thing they look at is the, the error detection systems in the brain. So as you're doing something, you're monitoring, is this going right? Or am I making a mistake? And when you're intrinsically motivated, you're more alert to making mistakes because you want to do it well, as, as opposed to extrinsic, if you're being rewarded or you're doing something for fear of, so you don't get punished, you don't want to make mistakes. You don't want to pay any attention to it. It really contributes to excellence, to higher performance, to greater engagement, to more positive mental health. And I think that the challenge for, for me is that many schools, the main motivators for kids are extrinsic. They're stars or high grades or detention you know, that, that stuff that just doesn't build that internal intrinsic motivation. And, you know, and the, and the easiest, I was, I was just reading a neuropsychological evaluation and talking about a kid who struggled with attention issues, ADHD, organizational challenges. In terms of modifying behavior, the language used by the evaluator was that the parents used natural consequences of taking away privileges. And I <laughs> smiled and I said, well, that's not a natural consequence. And this is something we've talked about before, but it's worth just reminding ourselves and everyone who's listening is that a natural consequence happens without any intervention by a parent, a teacher, or anyone else. If you indulge me for a moment, Bill. So my family has this cabin in upstate New York. It's a dirt road that's not maintained by the town. And so 
the handful of us who live on this road are responsible for it. Now, my wife and I are not there full time. The folks who are there full time are between 70 and 85. And they're remarkably capable and responsible and wonderful people. It's just that they're not not 70 to 85, right? And so physical tasks aren't quite in their skill set as much as they used to be. So I have this kind of proper farm tractor and I bought a backhoe to dig things out. And there's this, there's this big dirt road that go up and, and there's a trench along the side to gather, you know, water that seeps off a hill. And then, so it doesn't go over the road. And so this hasn't been dug out for, oh, a decade anyway. And it just fills in over time. And so I got this backhoe and my brother was visiting me for the holidays. We dug the thing out, dug the thing, dug the thing out. And then he went home. And then the next day I was going to grade the road. And I got too close to the edge of this ditch and the tractor, and I'll put the picture, I can do this for the, for people who are interested. I got the tractor stuck in the ditch and then I tried to get out and it just dug itself deeper and deeper. And I'm in mud up to the axle, about two and a half, three feet of dirt. Jeez. That, my friend, is a natural consequence. (laughs) (laughs) But the thing that was so funny was I was hell bent on getting this thing out, ideally without letting my wife know whose reaction predictably was again. (laughs) 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 So it was going to be 25 minutes of just grading the edge of this and making it, you know, getting smooth and, and angled the right way. And it ended up being two and a half hours of extrication, you know, in 34 degree weather, Oh my goodness. But the amazing thing about this is, I mean, I was, I was, it was annoying and painful and muddy and backbreaking and on and on it goes. But when I, all this was said and done and I did get the tractor out, mind you, without having to tow it. So I was quite proud of myself. And it occurred to me not once in that two and a half hours, did I ever think of picking up my phone? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. because to your point, I was deeply engaged with it and I was very attentive to, is this going to work this way or not? What are the possible outcomes of this? And attentive very quickly to, am I making a mistake and make, am I making it better or making it worse? Because I was really intent on getting the stupid thing out in part because having to sit for the next four months probably wouldn't be great for anybody. Well, you know, where my mind goes in response to that great, great story is that, you know, we, we've been talking quite a bit lately about the idea that when kids have the experience of something stressful happens and they cope with it themselves, in the process of coping, the prefrontal cortex activates. And whenever the prefrontal cortex activates, it dampens down the stress response. Mm-hmm. And you think about emergency room physicians, you know, that there's some big emergency, they've done it 500 times. It's not very stressful for them, even though it, 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 there's all kinds of stuff going on. It's very demanding, but they have that sense of control because they've been there before. And what I think about is that experience that you had, it wasn't, you know, you, you weren't crying. You, you didn't try to avoid it. You know, I can't handle it. It's too stressful. You engage your prefrontal cortex. You figured it out. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't that stressful. I mean, it was, it was annoying and painful and right. cold. But it wasn't that stressful because you, you, fig- you figured it out. And that's where we want kids to go is when something stressful happens is rather than trying to avoid it or, or panicking or running for help. And it's not that, it's sometimes running for help is the right thing to do. But ideally, they have enough experience of coping by themselves that it trains the brain, it conditions the brain. When something stressful happens, the act- this gets activated in the prefrontal cortex and I go into coping mode. It's such a good point. I'll pull in our talk about the language of change. One of the things that we talk about in that chapter 
is the natural ambivalence that people have about anything, right? And so, you know, if, if I'm trying to get in shape or if I'm trying to improve my grades or if I'm trying to whatever, I have reasons to want to do the thing. And I also have reasons to not want to do the thing. What we're talking about, the ambivalence piece is in the chapter on the language and silence of change. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yep, yep, mm -hmm, yep, yep, yep. Thank you. And so when I think about if a kid is, you know, someone's trying to improve, you know, change what, whatever, they have reasons to want, if I work harder, maybe I'll get my grades up, maybe I'll feel better, my teacher will be more impressed, my parents will relax, whatever. But also that it could be a pain in the neck, I don't really like my teacher that much, this class is kind of boring. And as we point out, that I could work really hard and, and it might not get any better. And then it's kind of scary to, to kind of put in maximum effort and realize that your maximum performance is pretty substandard. And that's threatening and stressful that oftentimes people don't want to take that on. And therefore, they avoid that challenge. It's easier to say, well, if I wanted to, I could, but we kind of protect our ego that way. And so if you tie in that point that you just made, that when for me, it wasn't that stressful because I knew, well, <laughs> frankly, I've been here before. I'm confident I'll be able to figure this out someplace. The more the kids have the experience working through things that are hard and the confidence that if I can make this work, that's one way that's likely to tilt that ambivalence in the direction of doing the thing rather than avoiding the thing because they have an increased sense that, yeah, this is going to be annoying, but I can do it as opposed to this is annoying and I have a fear that I don't know if it'll work. Yeah. Yeah. And this ambivalence piece is, is so, you know, when we were working on uh, that, that chapter of the language and silence of change and studying quite a bit about motivational interviewing, mm -hmm. uh, where, we, where, kind of where this idea of ambivalence comes from, we have a story in the book about this, this high school counselor who is dealing with one, one of her students who's smoking a lot of pot. And the story about how she intervened and started out by saying, I, I'm not going to try to make it stop smoking pot. You, know, you can figure that out. But basically, the way she talked to the, the girl eventually made the girl realize that I need to change without any attempt to making her change. And while we were working on the book, I tested this 15-year-old kid who was kind of mediocre student, but a really good basketball player. And he was, he was going to 10th grade, and he wanted to make the varsity. And he was smoking a lot of pot over the summer when I tested him. I sent the parents got a draft copy of this chapter. I said, you might want to just try this. And so the, the mom just said sat down with him and said, tell me about what, what pot does for you. What, what do you mm. get out of it? You know, when he talked about what those most kids do, you know, I have much less stress or don't worry about everything, you know, that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm more fun to be with. I enjoy my friends more. Then he said, but the problem is that I can't push myself hard enough. I'm not going to make the varsity. If, if I don't practice harder, I'm not going to make the varsity. And the mom said, does that suggest it? What, what do you want to do about that? So well, I, I think I need to smoke less pot. By the end of the summer, he was, wasn't smoking pot at all. She helped him find his own reason for change by, by not by judging, not by telling him a million times, you know, just simply by he really wanted to play the varsity. Yeah. And I, and I don't know that this, you know, and certainly when if kids have serious drug and alcohol problems, they, they need treatment. Mm -hmm. But I th think if a kid, the parent, you find your kid had a big stash of pot, the first impulse is, is to come down on. Right. And I, th I think that part of our message is where we can. Try to understand before we judge, before we, we, we react in a way with any kind of consequence. Try to understand what it is. 
I think that's so well said because, you know, so help me understand, you know, why do you have this big stash of pot, right? And it might be for the, I'm thinking, <laughs> student I worked with 20 years ago where there was a, a pipe burst in their basement and flooded the basement. And one of the kids had his basement bedroom and his mom and his sister went down and started pulling everything up and they found this stash of pot because the kid was you know, there, there's going to be a big beach week and understanding where that's coming from. You get a different, not that I, I don't recommend marijuana use for anyone, particularly for teenagers, but understanding that he was holding this for 20 other people versus what he was smoking himself. You might end up, you might approach that a little bit differently. Yeah. yeah. And if I may, I'll, I want to just walk through for a moment, just kind of how one does the principles or the practice of motivational interviewing. Sure. And the idea behind this is because people are ambivalent, including our children, when we immediately start arguing one side of the equation, they're really likely to argue the other side, all the reasons we say the reasons why they say the reasons why not. And then the challenge is those reasons why, one, they tend to fight us, but two, those reasons why become tainted <laughs> and kids are, are likely to, then, well, I can't, I can't think about those. I can't, you know, here I told you, so I can't give my parents the benefit of the doubt. And so what we do is instead of arguing, trying to talk kids into it, just as you shared, Bill, we ask these open-ended questions. Well, tell, tell me what you get out of it. And then we use reflective listening and kind of repeat it back to, to convey to the other person that we're really trying to understand their perspective. And then ideally we are creating space for change talk where kids then articulate for themselves their own reasons in this case. But gosh, I really would like to make varsity. And there's a story that's not in the book. I, I about a couple, three months ago, I started working with this young woman who's at a local independent school here in DC, incredibly driven, incredibly academic, incredibly perfectionistic, stressed on and on it goes, sleeping four or five hours a night. And she's on a collision course with some bad outcomes and her parents can see this and the school administrators can see this. And so the started with her advisor at schools and went to her and said, listen, you know, you got, you got to drop one of these classes because she was taking six academic classes rather than five. And all of them were AP level or the like. And so the teacher went to her and said, you really got to drop one of these. And then her advisor did it. And then the head of counseling, and there were four different concerned adults who went at her and told her you have to, and gave her all the reasons why. And this kid is one bright enough to argue right back at them and to stressed enough that she's not, that she's incredibly rigid, inflexible in her thinking and she wasn't going to give an inch. So I was talking with her mom about this behind the scenes and thinking, mm, there may be a different approach here because what they're doing is making this kid dig in the same way that I was digging my tractor into a ditch. Yeah, yeah. And she was hell bent on staying there just because she wanted to prove that, you know, that she wasn't going to be talked out of it. And so eventually mom or, or the, I forget exactly how said, well, the girl asked, Hey, can I talk to you about some of my classes? I said, I'd be happy to. And so I reread the chapter on motivational interviewing and it went right down the line. So well, tell me about the class that you're in. What do you like about this? And what do you like about that? Is there anything you, you do you like one more than the other? Is there anything you don't like about this? All these open-ended questions, reflective, 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 uh, reflective listening. And eventually she, she started talking about the reasons why she didn't like these classes. You know, how much homework you're doing, how, what do you get out of it, blah, blah, blah. Oh, and then the open-end question, I said, if you had more time. So what I think I'm hearing is you're getting, you know, five hours of homework a night and you're only getting four hours of sleep. I said, if you made a change in class, and to your point, always this really tentative language. If you were to go from AP to regular or honors to regular, whatever, and you had more time, 
what would you do with that? And what I thought she was going to articulate was to go deeper into computer science, which is her great love. And she said, sleep. I said, oh, really? I said, well, tell me more about that. She said, I'm just tired all the time. And then a question that always runs through my head. I said, I said so just out of curiosity, when you wake up in the morning, the alarm goes off and you really just want to beat it to death. And you're thinking, oh, I would give X amount of money for another hour of sleep. For you, how much is that money? And she said, $5 million. <laughs> I said, really? Wow. She wow. said, if I had $5 million. I said, and I, this was not quite motivational interviewing because this was leading her. I said, but I had to, I said, if I may, is being in that honors English class that you kind of said you don't really love the teacher? I said, is that worth $5 million to you? And she said, not even close. Wow. I said, well, and so by the end of it, she decided to downshift or whatever on two of these classes. So she only had four advanced AP honors, whatever, and two classes that allowed her to breathe a little bit. So um, yeah, yeah. I was quite pleased because th this was a girl who's incredibly committed to her own academic success in ways that may be slightly unbalanced. But she's also miserable. And most people, including this girl, don't want to be miserable, but she really felt stuck. And by not telling her that she had to or why, she came up with her own reasons. I was delighted to have this tool in my toolbox yeah. because otherwise I would have fallen in the same path of everyone else of telling her all the reasons why to change. And when she already had the reasons within her. Yeah, that's a fabulous story. And I was just thinking, I was presenting in Ohio with a great scientist who, who studies basically mental health of medical students. Mm. And a parent asks a question about a kid who is, you know, I'm only my grades, you know, mm. how, what should you do? And the scientist who doesn't, who's not a clinician, you know, so we just, you keep telling them, you know, you keep telling them, you know, that's not, you're more than that. You know, I said, well, from my point of view, you know, what, what I would say is I can't take that away from you. you know, I see it differently. Could, could I, if you're interested, I'll kind of run it how I see it. Hmm. Because when people feel that we're trying to change them, they resist. So you're taking force off the table, just like the counselor with a kid who is smoking pot. I'm not going to try to talk you out of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I learned so much. A guy named Ross Green, who works with really difficult, resistant, angry kids, where he came to is you say, kids, I'm not going to try to use the force of my will to make you do things. You take you take force off the table. Partly because, as we've said in our, all both our books, you can't make somebody do something against their will. And, you know, I, I consulted with this family from California a couple of weeks ago who have an 11th grade kid who is very motivated for sports, very motivated for social life, and, you know, getting kind of B's and C's and this 11th grade, the parents are concerned about college. And the parents had loved the self-driven child. We've watched us lecture multiple times. And still, where they went is, how do I get him to more? How do I change him? How do I get him, right, more right. how do I get him to see that he needs to, maybe should we cut back or not let him do some of the sports? And I said, it sounded to me like you have a wonderful kid. And I listed all these things that they told me about. And I was a wonderful mm. kid. I said, and he has ADHD. So he's probably, he's probably 17 years old with a 13 or 14-year-old prefrontal cortex. You just got to trust that you don't have to. But in my experience, it's safe to trust that he can figure this out without our attempts to try to, well, what do we do about it? What, what do we do? How do we get him to like that? And the dad said, it's so interesting you said that because I, last night I made a list of, of qualities, 12 positive qualities. There are 10 qualities about this kid. Two are negative. And those are the only two we focus on. Oh, I love that. 
And I kept coming back and they kept coming back. How do we get him to? And I said, let's focus on you. Let's focus on what you're willing to do, what you're willing to support, not support, to do or not do. And certainly one of the places where the parents said, well, we told he's an independent school. The parents said, well, you're not going to pay for private school anymore if you don't work harder. And the dad said, is that reasonable? And I said, well, you know, I, I think that families who can't afford it, it's entirely reasonable to say, look, I just, I don't feel like that. The expenditure, you can, you can not work very hard at the public school. And I said, there's different reasons why kids are set to public school. Some religious education, private school. So religious education, some people feel it's a more safe environment. And the dad said, well, it's completely empty threat because we'd never set, they have a terrible public school system apparently Mm. where they live. We'd never Mm. set public school. Mm. And so where we left off was simply where we started, which is where we always start, which is this kid wants his life to work and we can't change him. What we right. focus on is what they say. So he, well, he wants to party. He wants to get with the other's friends on, on school nights when there's a test. We know there's a test. So should we not let him go? And you've had, I know you had a similar experience uh, like that. Did, oh, uh, yeah. This is in the book. This is hilarious. So for mind of revokes, I, I do test prep. And there's a girl at the very start of her senior year of high school. And so there are all these goings on and being a senior and all that's cool. And their last standardized test that she was taking up was two weeks away. And so the weekend before the test, she was going to take one more practice test. And there was this party. And so she asked her mom, hey, can I go to this party the night before the practice test? And it was, in hindsight, beautifully done by the daughter because she made it her mom's problem. And predictably, her mom, are you kidding? We've spent all this money, spent all this time. This is your whole life. And da, 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 da. of course, you're not going. I said, if I may, what I think your daughter did was pitched the problem to you. So you had to own it rather than her. And you, there was no winning there. Because if you said, sure, go to the party, no big deal. And that it didn't go well. And then the eventual test didn't go well. Then the girls could say, well, you said that I could enough, whatever, whatever. And then blame the parent for being permissive, right? And because the mom said no, the girl blew up and had a reason to be outraged and blah, 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 and then probably went in there and sulked on taking the test. We see kids do this a lot about things that are stressful because she was ambivalent. She wanted to go with her friends, but she also, you know, wanted to do well on this test. And I said, if that were to come up again, I said, you might sidestep that and go back into the consultant rule that we talk about in in both books. And say, well, boy, that's a good question. It sounds like you have reasons. It sounds like a really good party. But I also know you've been working like crazy, you know, with, with Ned for these silly, silly tests. And this is your last big test. I mean, how important is it to you to do well on that test tomorrow? How important is it to you go to this party? Maybe we can talk through the pros and cons on this. And there's a way that I, I'm quite confident this girl at, at the end of the day was, was, you know, to your point, wanted her life to work out. And I think she would have gotten to taking the test the way the mom wanted her to take the test, but would have done it under her own motivation rather than under duress. Yeah, yeah. That, that assumption that people want kids, want their life to work out, you know, they, they want to be successful. They want people to be proud of them. I think that, yeah. that it, it's a pretty good assumption. Yeah, it is. It yeah. is. So let me ask you one more quick question. Yes. So to pick up on, you know, Ross Green said, I'm not going to use the force of my will to make you do whatever. If for parents who have too often been or, to, you know, too consistently been trying to talk their kids into things and kids fighting them or using the force of the will in ways that have sort of tainted 
what's in the kid's own best interest or in ways that have really kind of polluted the relationship they have. So the, the kids resent more than respect the advice that the parents are, are offering. What's your advice for kind of a reset, if, you know, if, if people are trying to turn the page, turn a new leaf, a, a start of a new year? Yeah. In this chapter in, our, in, in What Do You Say called The Language and Silence of Change, we talk about the SPACE program, that this supported parenting of anxious childhood emotions that treats childhood anxiety just by working with the parents. Mm. And one of the things that, that parents are taught to do is to pay attention to the things that the, the way that they accommodate kids' anxiety. You know, if, if a kid if a kid's anxious standing at the bus stop by themselves, a parent will go out and stand with the kid, even though no other kid needs his parent there. It turns out that those kind of accommodations that we naturally make because we're mammals and we, we want to we want to soothe and protect our young that those accommodations actually make kids more anxious. So part mm. of what the space program involves is you sit down and say, I used to think that standing at the best stop, bus stop with you was going to help you be less anxious. But I can see it, that you're probably more anxious than, than when I started to do it. I realize it's not working. I'm not going to do it anymore. And I think that the same kind of thing in to what you're saying, Ned, which is that I realize that I've been trying to make you do stuff or talking to stuff and thinking that somehow I know better than you do what's right for you. And I realize that's not, I'm not, that's not right. I don't, I don't really always know what's best for you. And also, I've been acting like somehow you couldn't figure things out for yourself. And I realize that's crazy. You're a smart kid, and you care about your life, and you care about other people. And, and I'm 100% confident you can figure this out. Hmm. I probably said before, it might be one of our books, but I'm old enough now that I don't remember specific experiences. But I remember when I was in my 40s, I could still remember a specific time that my, my father had gotten mad at me or something and come into my room that night before I went to bed and apologized and said, you know, I had a hard day or I drank too many cups of coffee or, you know, and, and it just meant so much to me that he wanted to make it right with me, that he cared enough about me, respected me enough that I, I didn't deserve to be treated that way. And so I, I just think that, that kind of apologies or I, I used to think, but now I really, I'm, I'm seeing it differently, particularly that expression of confidence. The other thing that, as you know, that parents are taught to do in the space program is to say, I know that standing at the bus stop by yourself is, makes you really anxious, but I'm 100% confident you can handle it. The shift from being able to handle anxiety as opposed to try to prevent mm -hmm. anxiety. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I just love that idea. It's, I think in self-driven child, we mentioned that I felt my whole career just about that the, the best message you can give a teenager, besides I love you, is that I have confidence in your ability to make decisions about your own life and to learn from your mistakes. It just, it just grows kids up when you express confidence. So my, my long-winded answer to your question, in essence, say, I, I want to apologize. I used to think that, and, and now I realize that, that, like that, that can really help to heal things and reset a, a relationship. I mean, so, so, often, so often, you know, when we're lecturing, you know, with about 15 minutes in, we're talking about you know, our basic principles. 15 minutes in, a parent will say, what if I've already screwed up my kid? Well, you, know, <laughs> you go back and say, you know, I, used to, I thought I was doing the right thing, but now I realize that, that it wasn't very respectful to you. I'm sorry. Mm. Well, I guess I should start by apologizing for that list of uh, resolutions I had for you, Bill. I'll, I'll, walk those, I'll walk those back. There's a story in our new book, uh, which will come out in, I think, is it February 2025? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but just a little over a year about you're trying to solve a problem for Katie. Did she call you on it? You know oh, about? my goodness. Oh, it was such a wonderful parenting fail. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because, you know, she's, she's, what did she say? It, at the end of it, I, when everyone had calmed down, especially her father, I said, if I, if I may, I said, it would help me if, if you could clarify for me just where I 
really missed on that. And she said, it's fine that you want to offer me advice. It's just that when I'm upset, I just want you to listen and not tell me what to do and what to solve or how to solve it. And I said, boy, that's a good point. I should definitely write that down. Oh, wait, I have. <laughs> and still, you know, it's easy to fall back into that. I added a word, you know, yeah. because I in the draft, which is twice. Well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my yeah, goodness. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. one of one of two other quick thoughts. One is so often with young people, really of any age, we have this idea that we can't let them be responsible for things until they show us that they can be responsible. And we're talking through that, kind of making the observation that kids need to be responsible so much as they deserve to be responsible because it's only when they feel responsible for things that we go back to that, that activation of the prefrontal cortex that you were talking about, where they pay attention to what do they want, how do they go about it, that they're attentive to the mistakes that they make, and they work really hard to make things work when we don't let them be responsible for their own lives, right? How or when are they going to learn those things? And, and of course, kids do make mistakes. People, even sometimes adults do things like get the tractor stuck in the ditch because, Hey, life, right? And then the, the point you made earlier about that family whose kids said, I'm so glad re reminds me of that. There's a New Yorker cartoon and it's these two adults who are sitting on a couch and they've, it's their four or five-year-old daughter at their feet. And one, one of the other looks down and said, well, your father and I, your mother and I, we've been thinking a lot about what we want you to do with your life. Isn't it, we've been thinking a lot about what we want to do with your life? Yes. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Yes. And, and of course, as parents, we think a lot about what we think would be in our kids' own best interest and what we would like them to do. But I think we should remind ourselves that even if our kids haven't come to us and articulated their New Year's resolutions for 2024 and pasted them and, and tacked them on the uh, refrigerator door, children are constantly thinking about what do they want out of their lives, not just long-term, but, but short-term and down to the minute. And so we don't always have to do all that thinking for them because last time I checked, most people are constantly thinking about their own lives. Yeah. That's a great point. I, I was just talking to a friend of mine who has a friend who told his parents as an adult, I can't thank you enough for not having a plan for my life. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Isn't that great? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that is so well. Yeah. It's our job to help them and support them and to ask those open-ended questions, be curious about them just because we're curious about them. And remarkably, that interest in what matters to them is as motivating to them as anything that we can possibly say to them. Yeah. You know, which is why, you know, we've been lecturing to high school kids. It's called creating a life you want. Yeah. You know, because ideally we want our kids to have, as they get older, to have a life that they're happy with. So many kids who kind of misguided understanding of what makes people happy develop lives that they think will make them happy, but they don't. Yeah. Well, and to that, so, so wishing you and everyone who's listening and of course, all of your lovely children, happiness in this happy new year of 2024. Yeah. Thanks, Bill. See you, buddy. Bye. Hey folks, Ned here. Over the past 25 years, I've talked with thousands of parents of high school students, parents who care deeply about their kids' education and how they deal with stress and the pressure to succeed. 
but these parents need to work with a team they trust won't just pile on more pressure to achieve better grades and scores. This is why I started Prep Matters in 1997, to create a different kind of experience for test preparation, tutoring, and college admissions planning. This podcast and my books reflect our company's philosophy and approach to helping students. If you have a high school student and would like to talk about putting in place a plan, please get in touch with us. Visit our website at prepmatters.com or call 301-951-0350. That's 301-951-0350. Thanks.